recently or what's the yeah it's um yeah okay we, we've started recording but i might as well this is a matter to you know to add this to it um basically it was a question of whenever they something happened uh like in the news or whatever i always felt oh, i want to say something about it and then i'd you know look at my phone to write a tweet and then realized oh i've deleted twitter you know um so uh, yeah it makes it hard to tweet thereafter so basically Mm. i wanted to have somewhere where i could communicate certain thoughts um but without having to face all of the hate that came with it you know because when you write something on twitter then straight away there's all sorts of hatred and swearing and so on that follows it up um but also I, i i like to do things in a social manner so i thought you know, to have conversations with people who I've met on the path of my life um, would also be a nice record, you know, somewhere to, right. to go back to thereafter. So that's basically that's it. That's cool. I mean, you're, you're ruling out hatred and swearing from me, which I appreciate, but maybe that's... <laughs> <laughs> Feel free. Feel free. I, I can't promise, you know, let's see how it goes. Um, okay. No, man, I mean, no, it sounds... Uh, it's, it's cool. I mean, I, no, I, I get what you're saying. And I think to have a record in general... Something I've always regretted not not having is, you know, taking photos, right? I guess we were, we grew up, we sound like old men now, because we are, but <laughs> we grew up before <laughs> smartphones, right? You know, when we were younger. Um, and yeah, okay, I had a couple of friends who had cameras, and it's awesome, because when you do find those photos, my parents just moved house, and packing, unpacking my old room, you know, finding all these amazing photos that friends had given me, or I'd had one, you know, taken a camera out once ever. And I always wish I'd kind of had a bit more... Um, more of a record to to look back on because i definitely don't i mean i'm kind of happy i don't as well you know what i mean if <laughs> smartphones were around it would i'm not sure if yeah if that if that was all online somewhere on some dodgy you know facebook history then that's probably not good either but no i get the um i get the appeal for sure of documenting mm. but this i mean it, this is like a british thing is it because i have hardly any photos yet and uh, yeah. my you know my my wife's family all german of course you know they've got fo- boxes of photos you know coming out of every you know every every place you could stick a box has got a box of photos basically but mm. yeah i never did it's also it's a person thing wasn't it because there was definitely some friends that always had cameras mm. you know um i just wasn't one of those people and i you know went through years really cool years in a way uni and coming to china for the first few years and i haven't got any you know the only records i've got of those early china years are when people like alex bustamante and rita and ricky came and they would naturally bring a camera and take photos and so i've got these mm. weird snippets of people's holidays and stuff so so yeah, yeah. i don't know if it's british or if it's just us mm. maybe both Could be. Could be, could be. There's something about it, I guess. Maybe, yeah, we could try to glorify it and say, yeah, we want to enjoy the moment, not take a time out to take a picture. Um, yeah, just too lazy, though, isn't it? But, but yeah, I think that's absolutely. what it was. Or too disorganised to sort myself out. Because I always thought, I always thought that it wasn't like later I thought I should have had a camera. I always thought at the time I should get a camera, but I just couldn't be asked. Mm. <laughs> it's not yeah. as romantic when you put it like that. You're right. Let's no. go with your version. No, fair enough. In the moment, it's true. That's it. Absolutely. You know, I mean, if if it was good for Yoda, it's good for me, right? So I'm not. Gonna... <laughs> um, but yeah, actually, one of my because re- you know, I, I I feel that when I moved to Italy, um, yeah, not quite like the uh, the old poets, as it were, um, Shelley and so on and Byron, but you know, I I found I sort of discovered a bit more about myself, and then you know, coming to Germany just sort of um, yeah helped to consolidate that thought. Um, but you've moved 
even further afield. Uh, yes. I mean, that's a real culture shift. How, you know, how does it feel for you? How was it in those first few months and years? How was it? Oh, well, yeah. Um, I, yeah, it's funny. I never, I, the idea of moving was always quite um, attractive for some reason, at least traveling, you know, it wasn't necessarily, I definitely didn't come to China for 15 years. There was no way on the agenda, you know, but, um, you know, I, I definitely fancied the idea even before China came into the picture of of uh, going somewhere, you know, taking a year and travel or a couple of years and traveling and working abroad and stuff like that. Um, so it was always on the agenda. Um, uh, and then when the chance came, yeah, I mean, God, for sure, when I first came, the culture shock is dramatic, right? Because, I mean, it goes without saying, but it, it it when it's the thing that you that you recognize the most is that it's so different you know the writing is different you know so even street signs to a degree you couldn't recognize so you really you know um were lost uh if you yeah i remember one time for example leaving a leaving a club and my phone was dead and i'd only been there a week and i wasn't with my mate ross who who spoke a bit of chinese and i realized I couldn't remember where we lived. I couldn't remember how to say it, right, in Chinese. And I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? I was genuinely lost, right? And I thought, hang on, I've got, I haven't even got Ross's number. You know, like, I'm going to have to either find a charger somewhere for some weird Motorola. And, yeah, it was, I mean, you know, so that just kind of underlined. I ended up getting home. I ended up kind of finally working out uh, where we lived when a guy showed me a map, a taxi driver. But the point being that, yeah, it's just kind of completely, completely and utterly different um you know i mean on a basic sense everyone looks quite different you know the the language is different um it really is uh, culturally of course very very different as well so yeah that, i mean th- but that's that was kind of the excitement of of being in a place like china i remember i came quite a while ago it's before the olympic games so china was also changing so fast i mean it's changed so dramatically from those early years till now um, you know, I mean, that's well documented, right? But to have lived through that, it's quite a cool period, you know, to, to have witnessed that change and the growth of Chinese society and the kind of development that's gone along with it. Um, so in those early years, it felt so dynamic. It really did. I'd go home for like a month at Christmas or something and come back and there'd be like a new street and stuff, you know, <laughs> like a, a new a new building here. And it was really crazy. It's It's really, you know, I remember taking a friend when they were visiting to a to a we went to go to a market an electronics market that i quite liked and when we turned the corner the whole road had been destroyed it wasn't like the building was gone it was like the whole it was just rubble um and that's quite unusual right that i had been there a few weeks before and i was like yeah come and check this place out and it's like oh the whole street's gone okay so you know it was the the speed of change was insane um that's definitely slowed down then but yeah i mean those early years were marked by by that really the excitement the the freshness of being somewhere so different um amazing you know food and and trying to kind of build a a mini existence here um so yeah mm-hmm. did you did you actually okay so your friend ross um i presume was uh, british um but i mean did you actively sort of seek out other expats while you're over there or did you find it easy to actually start integrating straight away um yeah it's one of those things isn't it it's it's an unfortunate thing in a way but it's natural that you there's a kind of honing instinct that that people maybe not everyone but 
generally people seem to have that you seek out when you're abroad, especially maybe further afield, like somewhere like China, um, British things and people, which is a weird thing, right? But you you somehow do. And so, you know, you're naturally kind of gravitating towards the so-called expat bars and and places like that. I mean, of course, you're mixing uh, and you're, you're living in, you know, Chinese culture, but definitely uh, at the beginning, um, you know, you meet a lot of foreign people. It's weird. It's quite, quite a small community back then, it felt like. I mean, there were probably thousands and thousands of foreigners, but, you know, of, of our age who were there, um, who liked, you know, to go out and stuff, you felt like you kind of knew everyone. You didn't, clearly, but it felt a bit like that because the scene was much smaller. So, um, no, to answer your question, it was it was um, quite a few years, I'd say, until um, I got a bit more integrated into the local ways. I'm still not. I mean, you know, China is quite impregnable in a sense, right? There's such a defined local characteristics and culture that you'll always be the foreigner. That's one of the kind of odd, odd oddities of living here that um, it doesn't matter how perfect your Chinese is, doesn't matter, you know, how, how kind of Chinese your life is and how Chinese all your friends are or whatever, you, you would be for, forever the foreigner. So that's always that's always going to be a thing. But no, I'm much more, I would say, um, yeah, much less of a kind of cliched expat than I was, for sure. <laughs> that's okay. definitely a good thing. Mm, yeah. Right. Um, but it's interesting what you say about this impregnability. Would you say that this is perhaps a defense mechanism on the part of Chinese culture because this is their way of maintaining? I, I don't want to go down the line of uh, genetic purity because obviously that has negative connotations. But I mean, with regards to the uh, the, the maintenance of their culture without diluting mm. it and so on. Do you think there's that kind of element to it? I mean, there are one point what three billion Chinese. Yeah, 1.4, 1.4 billion, I think. Um, but, mm. but yeah, um, yes, I think that's exactly it. I mean, Chinese people are quite proud. I mean, it's hard to generalize in China because it's such a large country, and you know, culturally, it's as diverse as a, a, a continent in in essence, right? I mean, like Europe, um, you know, China's it's, it's got completely different um, people and minority groups and stuff like that. But you know, the Han Chinese is the by far and away the 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 um the majority um of the people and yeah there is definitely a kind of proudness in china of uh yeah being chinese and it's horrible you're right it feels a bit dangerous to start talking about it but this kind of um purity or whatever for want of a better word right that um Mm. the uh i don't know being chinese seems to um stand for i mean it's interesting now because the chinese um sports teams for example are getting a bit more diversified. You know, they've got naturalized Brazilians, right? Who were never quite Alex. good enough to get into Brazil. So, yeah, right. These players, um, and even there's a British guy in there, I think like a former Sheffield United player or something, who's got like a Chinese grandmother, you know? And so you're getting, you know, black, South American, white, Chinese uh, um, sports stars. And that's kind of causing the same... Uh, reactions in some pockets of the internet that I guess the first black English players uh, caused back in, you know, the the 60s or whatever in, in English football corners, you know, so there's definitely a little bit of a negative reaction to, to that. And I guess mm. that's based on the fact that China is, in essence, a bit more, um, yeah, I don't know if the word pure is correct, because you're right, it kind of, there's a connotation of positivity or negativity of suddenly being impure, but more like, um, 
less mixed, frankly, mm. right? China's just less mixed in, in general. Um, so, yeah, I think that's definitely um, at the base of of all of those things, for sure. Mm. Okay. I mean, it's very interesting what you say there with regards to the you know, comparing, as it were, these other elements, or these non-originally Chinese elements within the team to, I suppose, what... Um, Regis probably suffered back in the 60s or 70s when he played for yes. I think, Coventry City and also England, um, mm. I believe. So you know, obviously he must have encountered quite a bit of racism, as unfortunately a lot of the you know, the black stars in the Premier League do right now, which is absolutely embarrassing. But um, I mean, in, in China, obviously there is quite a lot of controversy with regards to the ethnic policies considered concerning the Uyghurs um, in, in China. But I mean, the, what you mentioned with regards to um, sort of social media references to these members of their national team, this would be the actual people. We're not talking about the government. And so um, are, there, are there also, is, is racism rife in China at the social level, not the government level, social level? I don't think you, you know, you don't, I've never seen or been victim of a kind of outright hatred or race you know definitely a bit of ignorance here and there that you know will result in because I'm a white guy or whatever and 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 for sure as a white you know it's hard really to complain of race or racial hate you know I think in in a in a weird way um like so-called expat or you know European expats have got benefits certain benefits here that um foreigners in other countries definitely don't have you know in some some senses you're you're given opportunities that you wouldn't necessarily have in other countries which is a weird flip of the situation um yeah i mean in the internet is always the worst um you know kind of place to to witness that kind of stuff but of course if you look online you'll see it you know you'll see the the normal but that as you've just said i mean you'll see that now in england you know i always felt when we were younger that that wasn't really maybe a big thing anymore but clearly it is um much bigger than i think anyone ever thought and you can see that on online uh, in any platform and it's the same in china and i would say you know so in general the chinese people are not uh you know very welcoming and and nice and kind but um yeah you go on the internet and then it disappoints you but it does i mean that's the case with every you know it's the same as what you were just talking about with twitter before you started recording right i mean it's just mm. just depressing sometimes when you go online um you read it what anyone says um so yeah i don't think it's a problem i wouldn't say it's a problem but then it's probably not my place to comment on whether it's a problem or not as a white guy i think if you were a black guy in china or a girl you might face a different reality mm. Um, and that also, what about the flip side? So your your wife is Chinese, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, she is. Um, because of her association with you, has that had some kind of effect on her in any way, either professionally or friendships or so on, or perhaps none, not not that you noticed at all. Mm, definitely not in those areas. No, I mean. Going back to my wife's hometown, she's from Xi'an, right, which is quite a big city, famous for terracotta warriors. You know, it's quite it's a beautiful city, Xi'an. But she, you know, is from the suburbs of, of Xi'an. So when I went back for the very first time, when we were engaged for Chinese New Year, to see her, I mean, I'd met her family previously, but to kind of be there for the Chinese New Year and with a whole extended family, let's say, you know, people are not so used to seeing a foreigner wandering around those communities right so 
you might get the odd stare or the odd you know look um but other than that i don't you know songs not had definitely any um any kind of negative face any negative consequences that she's told me about at least mm-hmm. other than no. yeah the a bit the slight embarrassment of just being a bit of a a freak show <laughs> me <laughs> over like walking around with a bit of a freak show in in suburban Shia. and apart from that that's about as as bad as it's got so okay yeah right. so when you go to a restaurant okay i don't know could you go to restaurants now in china because i've heard that china has everything yeah. really under control so yeah, you guys yeah, are really open yeah, yeah it's back to normal it's back to, i mean you can't travel outside china very easily and it's getting a little bit tricky at the moment to travel internally for chinese new year and stuff like that but yeah it's back to normal you can go to restaurants yeah and bars yeah. Okay, so you don't get like odd looks, or does the waiter come and speak to you in Chinese, or does he speak to your wife? I mean, are there any of these like crazy yeah, instances? You get this micro, I guess you could call it like a microaggression of a waiter speak. You know, you me trying to my Chinese is not amazing, right? But it's okay in those situations. And me saying something in Chinese, which I'm pretty sure is understandable, and then him just speaking directly to song instead of just saying to me I don't understand just kind of ignoring uh so those little things can be a little bit annoying but no generally I mean Beijing's so multicultural now and it's so um modern that you that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore when I first came for sure you'd get gawked a bit and gawked out in the street and people would come up to you and say hello but that really is long gone in Beijing that's that hasn't really been the case for a long long time Okay. And, and I mean, when you... talking about China is funny, right? Because it's so yeah. huge. It's really, you know, you keep reminding myself that, you know, Beijing is not necessarily representative of China. I would say absolutely it's not, right? It's a huge city. Um, but China is so, 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 so big. So someone's experience in Beijing is going to be very different to someone's experience in Anhui province or, you know, a much smaller uh, place. How has your geography improved of china because i mean i mean uh, was it good beforehand i mean if somebody threw you know a name to you where's the yangtze for example would you say oh yeah i know that or you know, <laughs> my geography is rubbish in general so it hasn't really got much better i know um of chinese provinces i didn't know of before for sure um you know much 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 more but I've always been, I'm terrible, you know, just in general. I don't know where counties are in England, really, either. So it's the same in China, right? I'm obviously more knowledgeable about the country now. I've lived it for so long. But I couldn't tell you where some, you know, some some places are or what's next to what or whatever. But I couldn't tell you that in England either. <laughs> I'm not the kind of guy you want when you're lost somewhere with a map. Yeah. No way. Or, or when you're lost on your own without a mobile and you don't know where you're going, that could also be quite... Then absolutely not me, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> then you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and okay, wait, so when you start, when you first arrived, and you decided to settle and so on. Uh, this is where you were teaching, right? So you were doing basically the same thing that I do, so training English and, <coughs> and so on. How, how how was that experience for you? I loved it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I did it for a few years. Um, I came over to China, right, with this kind of grandiose ambition to bring. I was obsessed with drum and bass music and underground music and I started DJing at uni and had my own decks and vinyl collection um was growing and growing on like a you know weekly basis and my friend Ross who was living here said there's no drum and bass in China and I was like I'm gonna come I'm gonna bring drum and bass to China that was basically the only reason I came over it so was that's a, this kind of syndicate thing yeah 
That's the right. syndicate thing, yeah? Okay. Exactly. So I came, um, I realised that that's not going to pay the bills immediately. So, yeah, I got I got a job teaching at the start. But I also then joined the syndicate, which is was already established. So Ross was lying. <laughs> there was drum and bass in China, really. He just didn't know okay. of it. Um, right. But I've had also a lot of failed, te- like hilariously ridiculous experiences in Chinese clubs getting thrown off the decks because... You know, they booked me because they thought I was just a kind of generic foreign DJ and I'd come and play drama bass music and they were like, get out of my club. You know, so I had to, about a year of doing that and then I joined the syndicate. Um, and yeah, during that time, I, I got a job as a teacher and it was awesome. I really enjoyed it. I really, I, you know, I, I miss uh, elements of that for sure. It was a cool, it was a cool time. But then the syndicate stuff um, got more and more intense and I ended up taking over uh stuff with the syndicate and we really grew it into a a bit of a monster but yeah um yeah going back to the teaching thing um it was a lot of fun it was you know teaching is one of those one of those jobs i found that you know it's just different it really is different every day pretty much right you're having different conversations you're meeting different people um so yeah i I did really enjoy that that time for sure and did you also feel that you, you you had to limit you know what you sort of exchange with students to grammar or I don't know for example vocabulary development and so on or did you always try to put a bit more into it so um, yeah in some cases assisting with project management or perhaps uh, introducing different sort of cultural approaches to specific work related or communication problems. At the time, it was IELTS exams, right? Okay. It was an IELTS training school. So it was about IELTS is like, you know, um, language, a test, right? For students who Mm -hmm. want to study abroad, like in England or Australia or whatever. um, And they've got to achieve a certain level. It's graded. um, I can't remember the system exactly. I think it's one to nine. And, you know, whatever, the closer to nine you are, you're more of a native speaker. And so we were teaching people to pass that test. That was what I was doing for those early years so it was cool because it's got the four elements of reading listening speaking and writing and the speaking and writing side was quite you know you get into you know social themed questions right about the environment and um morality uh and uh, you know a whole bunch of uh, topics so it was you know that was the interesting way that it wasn't just grammar and vocabulary really it was more having trying to develop arguments and conversations and stuff like that mm. and were, were they quite happy talking to you about politics for example because I, I remember once I had uh, um, a group of Armenian kids came over from Armenia just still during the days of the Soviet Union and um, somebody gave a speech which was critical of the prime minister at the time, I think it was, uh, it was either Miss Thatcher or John Major and these kids started crying because they were afraid because, oh, no, they've just criticized their prime minister. That means the Red Army is going to come and take everybody away. Um, how was it there in in, in China? As in, do they feel they can open up to you know, jolly foreigner like you and speak about communism? Yeah, a bit weird, um, for sure, because it was a real mixed bag. Some There were sometimes I brought up slightly, you know, nothing too crazy, but a little bit close to, you know, the bone we might talk about whether anyone had heard of you know anything happening in Tiananmen Square or whatever and um it was quickly kind of you know you'd quite feel the room sometimes be a bit frosty and then just 
change the subject and not really get into anything. And there'd be other times people would just ask you directly um, about stuff and you'd be like, oh. you know, then I would be the one being a bit, you know, so it was always, I didn't want to be, you know, that's not really your job, right? To kind of so-called educate people on these matters or whatever. But definitely, you know, I felt like, uh, yeah, with certain students, they were eager to talk about it to a foreigner, particularly because they felt maybe they might get a more direct answer. And then others definitely didn't want to go near it and they didn't feel it was um, appropriate. So it was okay. a weird one. I didn't ever really get into any of those uh, discussions in any great depth, really. I always tried to kind of circumnavigate it a little bit. OK, all right. Yeah. And um, all right. So the syndicate, because obviously here we're, we're also not only talking about one of your passions, but we're also talking about a real culture clash scenario. Right. As in because uh, you said this, it was like an underground music movement. And I mean, drum and bass in some ways was underground at a certain stage in the UK as well. So, I mean, how mm. how did you sort of, you know, bridge that divide? It was I, I mean, the syndicate is the best thing I've ever done I think I mean I when it wasn't me I'm not that's not on my shoulders but just on a personal sense it was the you know the best the most enjoyable the most rewarding kind of um thing that I've ever been involved in um it was a you know it was like an underground music label a brand I guess is the best way of describing it and it was at the start just a night that we do once a month that was in essence what syndicate was but when i we me and uh my friend john uh took over um after a few years and we really then shaped it into something um with not just me and john there was um like five or six of us in the syndicate and everyone was kind of involved it was a real collective and we kind of shaped it into a bit of a we it was like a kind of we built a brand right it was it was a drum and bass night, but it was also, it represented that kind of culture and movement, you know, um, there was actually, it was years and years we'd, we'd struggled with getting people coming to our nights and getting it kind of accepted. And it would be sometimes completely full and sometimes completely empty. And you never really felt like there was any forward motion or significant sustained momentum. Um, but then there was a certain point, I guess it was around, uh 2007 or something where it really started to take hold and it wasn't any more about you know the syndicate when i first came the if you looked across the audience in the crowd it was a lot of foreign foreign people you know there would be a few chinese and then a, just a load of foreigners you know and as it started to take a hold um in china in beijing that changed dramatically and that was really what made it then a success, I think, is because it became a Chinese, you know, the underground, let's say, movement in China. It had a foothold in certain venues that, that kept very specific music uh, policies, um, brought great artists to, to China and also were kind of like a, a haven for uh, young Chinese talent to come and play and do their own nights. And it became a Chinese um, thing. So it became different. A drum and bass, you know, a syndicate night in China wasn't really like any kind of drum and bass night in England. Very, you know, it was it had similar music, obviously, but the whole vibe was different. In England, mm. drum and bass can be quite moody, right? There's fights and it's got that edge to it. In China, it's never really been about that. You, you know, it's quite hard to explain. You'll see it when you go there. It's got very recognisable kind of um, people that go. Um, they dress a certain way and uh, 
yeah, it really, like I say, it, it felt like we'd kind of um, tapped into something at the time that had really seemed to take off. So um, those years of kind of building that that brand, um, building that night were was were incredible, really. And um, yeah, uh, it became much bigger than just a, a monthly night. We did um, we started working with an organizer of festivals here, the guys behind one of the clubs called Lantern. Um, and when we got involved in a festival called Intro, um, which was the biggest electronic music festival in China at the time, um, and we did probably the biggest, the main stage was the physically the biggest, but our base stage, it was called, um, was an incredible uh, thing. It, we had sponsorship from Sennheiser, so incredible sound system there, um, just absolutely rammed with people. And I think a lot of people came to those festivals really to come to to our stage, um, which was amazing, you know? So we started giving sponsorship for the things we were doing. We were doing interesting gigs where we were bringing people over um, for free and doing kind of, um, uh, yeah, being quite creative, I guess, in our approach um, in in marketing the nights and stuff like that. And it, it just became this, it felt like a family that we'd built with the syndicate. Um, and uh yeah that was the kind of rewarding side of it it really grew it took off and it became uh our lives basically for those years it was a it was a great thing it, i mean it's still going syndicate but it's scaled down dramatically since then but um it's still a thing it still exists many many years later and, and what was the composition of the crowd because there i mean it, this obviously heavily influences the development of um of the genre or or indeed the the movement if you consider it a movement as in you know was it mainly sort of young males um was it a mixed uh group did you have different uh, was it like uh, supported by the you know, um yeah uh, what was it lgbtq plus community as well who tend to be quite um you know they, they sort of push boundaries when it comes to music creativity and so on uh, how mm. did you sense that crowd yeah it was a real mixed bag that was the beauty of it it was a, like a just a hodgepodge of every you know so it was like that's what really felt cool about it there was really no pretentiousness about the whole thing so anyone could come however they liked um and compared to the uk for example we had a real you know pretty much a 50 50 girl guy split which is incredible because in england it's you know a massive sausage party right as we mm. say um normally um but no in china in beijing it really was not the case um yeah, predominantly chinese <laughs> yes you could call it but it was a predominantly chinese um uh there's some, there'll be some foreign foreigners there as well yeah 50 50 male female there would be just a mixture of everyone, yeah, from, I don't know, the, I guess the English teacher crowd to the kind of corporate, more people to the like, proper, you know, I guess you call them bass music heads who were going out to clubs every every day. Um, it's, it was it was a real, I mean, it, and it still is, you know, clubbing in China or going out to bars, it's a, it's a real mixture. Um, yeah, it's less defined. You know, England, it's very like you choose your team, right? You're like, I like house music. And then you go to house music venues and then that's your thing. Or I like drum and bass. And you don't really, they don't really cross over. Where nights in Beijing, you, you'd hear kind of across the spectrum at big uh, warehouse parties, you might hear, have techno one hour, the drum and bass and then house or whatever. So there would be a real mixture um, of people as a result. 
Okay. Yeah, it's, yeah as you say, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, Berlin is very, very electro. Um, and, you know, if you want to go and listen to anything that isn't in any way uh, sort of um, electro or jungle um, or drum and bass, uh, you know, it's very hard. You might find one or two mm. salsa clubs, um, but otherwise, you know, that's basically, that's Berlin, you know. Um, and also and, I've heard no. from, I've never been, but I've heard like Bergheim, right, is famous for its very specific um, dress code in a sense, right? If you don't look the part, you don't get the hell in, right? So you've got these British lads who queue up and they're like, nine. Yeah, <laughs> for hours, get for away. hours yeah, you right. can queue up. I, I actually, I, I've, not, I've never been, um, but I used to teach a guy who used to frequent Berghain and it he said it's not there is no dress sense as it were but the bouncers know what's going on inside the club mm. and if they see people in the queue who they think they're not going to find what's happening inside the club appropriate um these people could create problems we're just not gonna let them in so there are these dark rooms where it's basically it's like a, a sexual free-for-all um, and if the bouncer thinks that somebody's going to come across one of those rooms and just be absolutely shocked and not know what the hell is going on, um, then it's better that that person doesn't come in. So the, the bouncers actually carry a lot of weight um, with regards to admission. It's not just a dress policy at all, I think. It really is down to who they think will cope best with what's happening. Um, Do you reckon yeah. get in? I definitely wouldn't. I wouldn't. You might do. I wouldn't. I'd have no chance. His look at my socialist bid. Be shocked by a, a free for all dark room. No, absolutely I've got not, that no. look in my eye. You, you'd be standing <laughs> there with a with a pint and some peanuts, mate, and I think you'd be watching it. And think, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Um, whereas I, I'd, I'd be around the corner having <laughs> sipping it on espresso, um, and that's that's probably my my curse. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, no, it's cool though. It's interesting, but unfortunately, because of what's happened, Berghain might never reopen again. So now it's turned into, um, at one point they turned it into a little art gallery so that people could come and see, uh, these, uh, artistic exhibits while socially distancing. But uh, even that now is not allowed. So they're not sure whether Berghain will open again. So it remains to be seen. Wow. Crazy, isn't it? Become it's become like a culture. You know, it got it got certain designated status, didn't it? Like protected, you know, cultural status or whatever that's normally reserved for you know whatever old buildings and museums and all that kind of stuff. Wasn't it cultural uh, heritage? Didn't that become it a? Could, it I could have been. reading some article. Yeah, it could so have I mean, been. It can't uh, be destroyed or whatever. It can't. You know, it's yeah. You probably can't. Yeah, you probably can't knock it down. But uh, on the other hand, I don't know if that those parties, you know, essentially will continue in the way that they, they were allowed to before. I, I don't know what will happen. Mm. I mean, a couple of times it was voted club, you know, best club in the world, um, which yeah, that's quite a, a special sort of award to win. Um, but beyond that, I don't know. Like I said, I've never been there. So, um, but whoever I knew who had been, you always said it was a fantastic experience so yeah i'd have to uh, i'd have to just trust their thoughts on that yeah but now yeah. okay all right so and and now you are at a german motor car company i am yeah famous are we allowed to say brand names on this podcast it sounds like we're on a British <laughs> say anything you want. game show from like the 1990s i work for a famous hotel chain no um i it's out yeah with um 
and I have done now for almost five years. It's five years um, soon, actually. It's five years next month, I think. So, oh. yeah. Okay. And yeah. Um, yeah, in in an interesting element, motorsport and marketing, is it? Mm. Yeah. So I um, have been working in the motorsport world my whole time uh, there until uh, November last year, and then I got a bit more of a increased uh, role, I guess, like capacity. I do a bit more experiential marketing, they call it, which is a posh word for events, basically. So brand events and motorsport is is what I do now. Yeah. Okay, it sounds pretty creative as well. So is, is, do you bring your drama based creativity to bear on your uh, exhibits? I mean, it, not. I wouldn't say the music has helped in a direct sense, but everything we did with the syndicate has directly helped um, my work in that area for sure. Um, you know, I did uh, after the syndicate, then I joined an agency in the creative agency area, right? Like digital uh, creative agency doing social media and digital marketing and stuff like that. And that's how I got connected. We were weirdly a motorsport team that kind of came out of nowhere, but we worked with uh, and, and on, on various car and motorsport projects. And um, definitely this brand building thing that I spoke about with the syndicate was 100%, um, you know, kind of carried through then on those you know, building campaigns and kind of creative approach to uh, the work we did with clients. It went, you know, the, everything I kind of had learned during that time was hugely useful in that area. And then that continued in. So I wouldn't say I'm necessarily, uh, it's weird when you're on the client side, when I'm, you know, on higher yeah. agencies to be creative for you. But definitely having that base is necessary for guiding their creativity i would say to to kind of match what you want to do as a brand mm-hmm. and and how how open are sort of other chinese industrial uh, partners um in sort of teaming up with you know, a, a big name like um and doing like uh, the, do you do joint ventures with them you know for example um <clears throat> we've got a, we've got a joint i mean in china they i mean they've changed the laws slightly for nev right new energy vehicle companies uh, who operate in China without a joint venture. But um, until recently, you had to have a joint venture with a Chinese state-owned enterprise to build cars in China as uh, a joint venture partner and has done um, with a Chinese state-owned enterprise. Uh, so the, to answer your question, they're very, um, what's the word, encouraging to uh, have two <laughs> partnerships with the state-owned, state-owned businesses because it's, I mean, it, honestly, it's a, it's a cash cow for 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 everyone you know i mean to try for sure you know this state-owned company our joint venture partner has done a great job you know in building in china into like this formidable thing where it's by far and away the biggest market in the world so cash cow is the wrong word because cash cow implies it's just earning money by itself and you don't have to do anything it's actually a really sophisticated and developed car market but what i mean is that you know china having developed and got this massive burgeoning middle class now it's just an incredible it's a dream really for car companies to have such a um yeah what's the word um market yeah well so, yeah such a but such a focused market you know chinese people like to buy new cars that's the that's another big cultural difference between english people and chinese i don't know anyone in england that buys new cars I don't, I, don't, I don't know how they ever sell new cars to be honest because everyone i know buys second hand even if it's only a year old or whatever like a former lease um, mm. 
The only people I ever saw driving new cars were, com- you know, company car, people that had a company car. Yeah. Whereas in China, the idea of buying secondhand, I mean, there is a small secondhand market, but generally people buy new cars um, as a rule. Um, so, yeah, for a, for a car manufacturer, it's, it's a dream really to have such a, you know, such a market where it's huge. People buy cars, mm-hmm. they buy like new cars. And um, yeah, China's it's an incredible place. Like I say, it's, it's dynamic, uh, fast moving and um, yeah, and by far and away the biggest market in the world for the car manufacturer. Mm. I, I, I don't buy into binary situations like good or bad, black or white. Those kinds of things don't don't really go for me. It's the way that I see life is that there's there's a lot between left and right. There's a lot between black and white. And so mm. there you can't ever really turn around and say I'm right and you're wrong because I don't think that ever works that way. So um, and the reason why I have this introduction is because um, a lot of the times we we look at things and say, OK, Western policy, good. Eastern, Far Eastern policy, bad. Uh, clearly, that's not the case. Um, clearly, there yeah, there is a lot um, to to analyze and focus on whenever we come up with uh, political discourse of that f- form. Um, but obviously, the previous U.S. president was quite vocal in in some of the things that he said. I probably disagreed with 99% of them, but anyway, I mean, he was quite vocal. Um, and there was this U.S.-China trade war. Um, how much did that actually have an effect on on what you were doing or your market, or was that just you know, rubbish that existed on the sidelines? Um, it didn't affect uh, the business of or the auto market here in a direct sense. It definitely, you know, was it raised tension for sure in China. You know, people were very aware of um, the escalation intention with America and Trump being very vocal, as you said, and anti-China. Um, and that was a, a feeling that people had, excuse me, which, um, yeah, uh, was visceral. You could feel it, you know. Um, but no, it didn't. I mean, it didn't affect in a direct sense uh, the car business here. I guess it would have had more of a direct. I mean, it affected the economy because obviously then Chinese imports into America were were. F- getting taxed harder or harder to you know so they were they were putting an america first policy in place so for sure it kind of had an impact um in china but not really on our on what we do on the day-to-day basis and and when 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 trump took the u.s out of the paris uh, climate accords um xi jinping then had a, a press conference or, or maybe his representative it could, the foreign minister could have been um but essentially said okay china will become the the, the number one sort of environmentalist uh, or forward-thinking government with regards to environmental policy um do you think that the environmental concerns climate control issues have actually you know gone forward substantially in in china uh definitely yeah i think china will be the only one really that you could say with any kind of authority that will fulfill the promises made um at those uh, at that paris conference you know uh, to be to reduce the um the foot, you know, carbon footprint by, I can't remember the exact percentage, but by a certain amount by 2025. And then again, right in by 2035, for sure, China will do it because there's such a ordered, orderly society in a sense, you know, it's top down, 
and uh, the government really can make those kind of things happen really they're very regulation driven right so um uh, uh and you know i think there's a feeling in china as well which is commendable that you know people want to support those things right the government's wishes to do this and so they will follow rather than in england there's there's a very much more of a pushback against those kind of things when people feel i don't know that it's infringing on on what they want to do to some degree i mean you can look in beijing for one i mean you can you can actually see it and feel it when i first came for years beijing was incredibly polluted incredibly i mean horribly so actually it was actually one of the reasons people left um my friends left so i was definitely affected whether i wanted to stay long term as well um i mean pollution you could see in the sky with smog basically of a thick kind of fog uh orangey color um horrible and so these aqi apps um started coming out where you get a reading every day and people wearing masks even it got so bad and that is over it's over it's crazy last year in beijing in the year before but especially last year it's incredible it's a blue sky pretty much every day you might have had oh, four, five, six days over the year where it might be a bit polluted. We just had in Chinese New Year a bit of pollution, actually. But it was, you know, funny that it was so shocking. It was like, oh, my God, wow, this is like going back back seven years in Beijing because it really has cleaned up. Um, so, yeah, I mean, on that level, um, there is obviously a real drive to uh, deindustrialize or at least switch the industrial industries into a more a greener, um uh approach somehow and in the car industry that's a big thing as well i mean he's following a hugely electric electrified approach with um you know the whole portfolio will be electrified and so i think every car company is making these commitments now um and so yeah i think china will do it i think china really will hit the hit the targets and mm. i don't think other, other countries necessarily will because they're ambitious but i think i have a feeling china will do it mm. is this is this one of those scenarios where you actually can probably look at it and say do you know what democracy isn't um, as uh, advantageous uh, a system uh, as, as people believe, because uh, as you said, it's top down that when they decide to do something, they push it through. They don't have to limit themselves to a four year plan. They know they're going to be reelected or they know they're going to stay in power long enough to push through their policies. Do, do you think that there is a definite advantage to, uh, to long termism in China? Definitely. I mean, so to some degree, you, you, you know, I mean, there's there's elements which are good and elements which are bad, for sure. Um, um, and the good side is simply that, yeah, that things can be done. I mean, the, the COVID, the COVID thing is a, is maybe an example of both of those sides in, in one. And it's to do with that top down nature and the kind of things that the mechanisms which are in place, which don't allow for full transparency and stuff like that the measures that came in were clear uh they were they were carried out with you know precision and they worked i mean and you look at england as uh in that regard as just an absolute disaster you know we've just put in place last month controls at airports you know and in december you could come to england from any country in the world and just walk through heathrow no covid tests nothing nothing um which is mental uh, for me, especially living in China and seeing how um, it just how clear and and precisely things have been carried out and how it's worked, 
uh, in a really positive sense. So that was that's definitely a, yeah a good example um, of how the system can work. Yeah. Mm, okay. Um, and, and also another eye on the future. So uh, I think recently in the last week or so, there have been three probes to reach Mars, one of which is Chinese, one is uh, um, from the USA, one is from the um, United Arab Emirates, I think. Yeah. Um, but China also has a probe or is it a fixed satellite going around uh, the moon. Um, how do you see the new space race? building up do, do you think china has a real foot in the proverbial universal door i don't know it's funny isn't it i haven't really paid much attention to that i i, I know the one i know exactly what you're talking about i saw a uh story today about the uae's uh probe or rocket or whatever reaching its destinations i mean um Definitely. I mean, you know, China definitely has its sights on becoming a global player and all of the trimmings that that comes along with that, right, would be uh, being involved in space to winning World Cups and Olympic Games to, you know, hosting those games to, um, you know, leading the climate, um, you know, uh, uh, controls and stuff like this. So absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, like I say, I've got full belief that they will succeed in this. You know, like I say, a kind of single mindedness and a kind of uh, uh, resoluteness to the approach in China. And it, and it works. It does. I mean, China, when they generally want to do something as a nation, um, they do it and they're able to fulfill it, you know. Um, yeah. So I'm sure that whatever they've committed to in space will be <laughs> somehow achieved. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Um, and, and one one little sort of final topic, because obviously for, for me, China is uh, is this you know vastly in many ways mysterious land which you know has a history that goes back thousands of years. Um, so I mean, there's so much that you know one could perhaps sit down, talk about, and uh, consider when it comes to China, its culture, and you know the the, the wealth of culture that it has. Um, but China is also a social time bomb in a sense because by 2050, I think the calculation is that there will be over 400 million pensioners uh, in. China and obviously they they introduced this law to increase uh, families uh, allowance for children from one to two, um, but that was quite slow on the uptake because culturally people have not really you know found it quite difficult to all of a sudden have you know the additional child. Um, how do you see that social time bomb developing as Chinese society moves in that direction? Yeah, it's definitely a thing that I think a lot of people are aware of in China. You know, it's spoken about a lot at lunches and bits and pieces and stuff like that. Um, I really, yeah, I I will say something about the, you know, the, the aging population or at least, you know, the older people in China. That's one of the things that really is a bit heartwarming when you see it in Beijing, for example, is the culture that surrounds old people. Um, in England, I don't feel like old people, people over 70 or 80 don't, I, I get the impression they don't have a lot of friends or they don't socialize in the same way. I'm sure some do, but there's a tendency in England to kind of shut down a bit, right? And to just stay at home, watch TV and maybe walk to the shops or whatever, but live a bit of a cut off, lonely existence. Whereas in China, the old people seem to have a whale of a time. They have like all their mates around, they're on the street playing chess and having a beer in the, in the summer, um, it, dancing 
dancing. Like you'll go onto a street corner <laughs> on a Friday night and they'll be like doing organized um, dancing. It's awesome. It's really sweet. It's really nice. To um, drum and bass. Well, so, yeah, exactly. I step up sometimes um, <laughs> to a back-to-back with my mate. Um, I mean, it's it's a really cool thing. Um, so that's just something you can observe. You know, I don't know. You know, I'm sure it's not true in some ways. I'm sure there are lonely old people in China and very sociable people in England as well. But just as a general thing, it's a really cool thing to see. So if there is going to be a glut, like an overpopulation of old people, at least they're going to live well, for sure. I, I, I have that feeling. Um I don't know. Yeah, I think the young people in China have got a lot to a lot of burdens on their shoulders, right? One is this that they're going to end up be somehow paying for a lot of pensions basically when they're working. Um they don't have lots of brothers and sisters in general because it's one child policy. It's now changed to a two child policy, but from all accounts it's not necessarily changing everyone's lives. Some people are still just having one child because there's this idea that, you know, you have to put them through uni and give them the best possible chance and if you have two maybe it's you know, much tougher to do that money wise and stuff like that. So um, those single children have a lot of burden to carry. Right. There's a real strong uh, culture to look after your parents when they're old. Um, and obviously two P one person looking after two parents is much harder a burden than if you had a brother or sister or two. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of things on their shoulders. Um, but look, I mean, I, I'm no expert. Right. Uh, I don't want to speak like I am, but. If I've noticed one thing in China, it's a, it's resilience um, of the people. They're incredibly um, hardworking, um, incredibly resilient. More so in from my feeling than British people, in a sense. In Britain, we've had it good for a while, so there's a tendency to moan. We're, we're a country of moaners, right? We're all, we're all aware of it. I moan. We all like a good moan. Um, whereas in China, I would say culturally, there's more of a thing of just get on with it. They have a much tougher existence in some senses, and I don't see at least myself, a lot of moaning. I see them just get on with stuff that we wouldn't necessarily get on with in England, you know, um, be that working six days a week, uh, sending all your money back to your family without a holiday or whatever, you know. So whatever burden will come, I'm sure they'll they'll manage. They always have. So I'm not sure how they will or what that will mean for society, but um, they'll find a way for sure. So adversity breeds resilience, essentially. Absolutely. And um, I mean, there's been adversity for sure. Um, yeah, um, I just think it's kind of ingrained. It's like a Chinese characteristic. I think that's why Chinese people are so successful abroad. You know, you don't meet many poor Chinese people in England, do you? I mean, they're all probably quite well off, the business owners and stuff like that. And I think it's a work ethic. I think it's a certain resilience um, that kind of shines through um, everywhere in the world. Um, uh and so yeah you, you it's really something you can feel in china cool all right i think that's a great positive uh, place to, to to bring the conclusion to a natural natural end i think uh, an hour more or less is also uh, about the, the the extent of the uh, attention span of a lot of people who may even consider listening <laughs> to this um, they've already gone but yeah <laughs> they fell asleep half an hour ago um alex thank you man it's uh, it's great to have the opportunity to to catch up and uh, you know, have a natter um yes. i know you're really busy so you know uh, i wouldn't want to you know put any pressure for sort of re- you know, repeated too many you know, too frequently but uh, if you do have a yeah you know, some free time in the future it'll be great to have another chat and uh, look at things a bit with a bit more deeply perhaps Mate, I'd love that. Thanks so much. It's been great. It's really been great to catch up and uh, let's do it.
I'm well cool. open to that, man. Um, yeah, yeah. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be listening out for the coming uh, podcast, man. All the best. And uh, thank you, yeah. you too. And uh, again soon. Yep, definitely. Take care. Nice one. Take it easy, Zach. Nice one, mate. Bye. Bye. Bye.